Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. I see lots of familiar faces, some uh, uh, students who have been with us all the whole time, including Yana, who's made it from Europe even in the middle of the night for all nine now, the the Return of the King classes. Uh, some people that I haven't seen in a while, some people I just met at Mythmoot. Hi, April. Good <laughs> good to see you here. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, what a what a neat group of people. For those of you who are uh, who are new to our interface here, um, there's the questions box. That's the really important part. Uh, type into there and hit return, and I'll be able to see it right away. So if you want to contribute to, if you have any observations on what we're talking about, or want to ask further questions, uh, then please, by all means, uh, uh, go ahead and do that. So tonight, what we're going to be doing is open Q&A. So I, I have received a bunch of questions, um, and I would like to, I would like to go through those. I want to start with requests to discuss bits that we didn't get to. Um, uh, we're going to uh, uh, touch on at least one passage of the Two Towers and then some Return of the King business. Um, <laughs> Brandon Lovesey is complaining about uh, my sleep, my, my depriving him of sleep uh, from doing two evening sessions in one week. Uh, yeah, well, Brandon, again, just think of the poor Europeans, some of whom stayed up until 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning <laughs> on Tuesday, or rather on Wednesday morning. Um, anyway, so yeah, okay, so first, actually, I don't have a slide for this one, because I just got uh, this question from uh, Rachel Barton, um, like, uh, an hour ago. Um, but it's a perfectly fair request. She asked that we talk some about the Palantir, as in the Two Towers class, I contrived in, entirely to skip the Palantir chapter. Um, so I'll sort of make a few remarks about the Palantir. One of the things that I think is important uh, about the Palantir, as it is described there, is that I don't believe that we are to understand that the Palantir is itself evil or corrupt. Um, that is to say, keep in mind that the Palantiri are communication devices. You know, they are means by, primarily, they are means by which people can communicate with each other uh, from afar. Now, we are told, Gandalf talks about using the Palantir to see other things. We know, of course, that Denethor uh, 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 puts it to that kind of use, and Gandalf suggests that it can be used to see things not only remote in distance, but also remote in time. Uh, in particular, uh, he wants to, uh, he mentions the desire to use it um, to look back and see the unimaginable hand and mind of Feanor at work, um, a line which is particularly poignant. It's one of those lines that I, I, so I think of when I think back to um, what it must have been like, I didn't experience it myself, but what it must have been like, uh, uh, well, I, that is, except in my childhood, when I wasn't paying so much attention to these things, uh, to read The Lord of the Rings without the Silmarillion, that is, when, the, when that name, Feanor, just kind of floated out there uh, without any clear story behind it. But anyway, um, uh, so, yeah, anyway, you can see things in it, but does it draw people? Is it corruptive? You know, it's less... It's not really obvious to me that that is necessarily the case in any kind of obvious way. Um, when Denethor and Saruman 
you know, for, for both Denethor and Saruman, obviously, it plays a significant role in their corruption. But with neither one of them is it actually corruptive. That is to say, the possession of the One Ring, for instance, um, does seem actually to corrupt you, actually to twist you uh, morally. Again, I think of Gandalf's words when he talks about, you know, that, you know, uh, you know good intentions will not endure, you know, when you have the One Ring. Um, it will eat your mind away, again, to quote Gandalf about it in another thing, uh, in an, in an another context. That is, the, the, the effect that the ring seems to have on its possessor is simply evil, and it corrupts them morally. Um, but I don't think the, pa- the, the palantiri work the same way. Um, I think that in both of the two cases where we see it acting corruptively, um, it is a means, essentially. It, it, it enables both Denethor and Saruman to pursue the desires that they already had. Um, they are both of them corrupted by... corrupted both directly, in direct confrontation with Saruman, and indirectly, more indirectly anyway, um, for Denethor. By the will of Sauron directly, that is one of the, the biggest problems that they have with the Palantiri is that Sauron is on the other end of the line. Um, this is a particular danger with Denethor, uh, that he because he's looking in the stone of Minas Tirith, and the stone of Minas Tirith and the stone of Minas Ithil, we're told, are, are most uh, are, are very very closely associated with each other. Um, so again, both of them through uh, Sauron is using the, the Palantiri as a medium to reach to their minds, or rather to, in Saruman's case, draw him to reach out to his, and at which point he will trap him. Um, so again, it's not that the Seeing Stone itself is perverting Saruman, but rather it is the medium through which Sauron gains uh, um, gains access to Saruman's mind. Both Denethor and Saruman were already treading a crooked path when they took up uh, the Palantir. So, again, it's a means. Not only it's not like, um, I, again, I think it's in that way, not like a ring of power. Pippin's attraction to the stone, uh, his curiosity, is very interesting, and I'm n- I'm not a hundred percent sure how to take that. I don't think that this is something that would affect everybody. It's obvious, for instance, that it hasn't affected everybody equally. Yes, Pippin did pick it up, but again, is there, does it have a magic effect on him that, that it, you know, it affects him by skin contact? You know, I mean, is it something that, that is communicable by, by, by contact with your bare skin? Had he worn gloves, would he be fine? I, I mean, obviously, I think these things, uh, to me, suggest that that's, that that's kind of silly. Um, in particular, the line that always... A line that always jumps out at me as being um, kind of ironic um, is I think about the parallelism between the dumb thing Pippin does involving a stone at the end of uh, at the end of book three at the you know in the middle of the two towers with with the uh, with the Palantir and the silly thing Pippin does with the stone in book two in Moria when he drops the stone into the well. And that line in which Gandalf is chiding him um, when they uh, when they hear the hammers uh, down coming up, the sound coming up out out of the well after Pippin drops the stone down in Moria, um, you know when Gandalf says it may have nothing to do with Pippin's foolish stone, um, and 
that phrase. Um, that phrase, uh, Peregrine's Foolish Stone, um, is something that, uh, that's the first time, you know, when I got to that passage, I'm like, wait a second, he's, he's got more than one foolish stone here, doesn't he? Um, and in both cases, we could see that his motivations are similar. In both cases, he's drawn um, against his better judgment uh, out of curiosity to probe the depths of something. He has kind of glimpsed over the edge of something, um, but wants to see more. And that desire to see more, which seems to be, in one sense, a fundamentally Tookish desire that Mr. Took has. Um, he drops the stone into the well to find out how deep it really is, and he uh, snatches the stone from Gandalf in order to look into it uh, and see what he can actually see in it, though he, though he did get a glimpse um, in... Uh, uh, though he did get a glimpse in, in, you know, when he picked it up and therefore wanted to see more. Again, that's what I attribute that to, not to some kind of addictive or, you know, some sort of magical uh, um, spell that is cast on him. You notice Gandalf kind of throws cold water on that. Um, you know, when uh, um, uh, he says he didn't know what he was doing and Gandalf says, oh, yes, you did. You knew you were acting wrongly. Um yeah, Brandon asks, well, if, if that's true, then what would Gandalf have the power to cure? His curiosity, apparently. You know, that basically that Gandalf saying, you know, such things can be cured, Gandalf does tell him. Um, I don't know. I don't know what means he would have used. The burned hand teaches best, he says. What would he have done? I don't know. Um, but, um, but it does seem to be... Um, yeah, Arthur, you're right. He does say that Pippin never should have touched it. I think, again, I, I, I'm suspecting that that doesn't have to do with, like, skin contact with it, but rather the fact that he picked it up and, 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 and glanced in it. Um, it makes me wonder to what extent Pippin might have been, uh, sort of, when he picked it up and looked into it, um, is he, um, you know, did he have some kind of very small indirect encounter, uh, you know, could he in some sense sense the mind of Sauron, or could the mind of Sauron sense him on the other end, you know, to, to detect someone looking into the stone? Um, is there some kind of attraction in it in that way? Um, uh, yeah, you know, Arthur, I, I agree with your phrase there, sort of Sauron calling to him in some sense, I think. Um, that seems to me much more likely, again, much more likely than this is simply a, pro a, a property of the stones. Um, that seems to me much less likely and doesn't seem to fit with what we're told about them and their original um, their original appearance. Um, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, uh, there's, there's obviously much more that can be said about them, um, uh, but, uh, but I, I, I thought it only fair to, to say a couple things about them. But again, to me, the most important role that they play um, for both Denethor and Saruman is to enable them to do um, what they're already doing. You know, in some ways, it uh, it's almost like it almost sort of shines a spotlight on them. I mean, Saruman was already going, but it's not like the the you know the the Palantir didn't make him go bad. It didn't. You know, it uh, he 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 already was. 
uh, presumably before he looked into it. I mean, I think that we don't know exactly when he looked into it, um, but uh, but it it seems relatively clear that he was already going that he was already going bad. So in this way, I think just the way that it gives them the capacity to pursue the ends that they have already chosen is what sort of serves as the amplifier. Um, and so in a sense, you can say almost the same thing with Pippin. Um, it amplifies his curiosity, the curiosity which almost led to complete disaster in Moria, um, and now almost leads to complete disaster again. And I, I, I get, the more I think about those scenes, the more striking I find the parallels, both in Pippin's motivation and in what he does, and the fact that he reveals uh, their presence to the enemy, and all those things. You can see you can see a pretty tight parallel between those two uh, those two passages, which makes the first one look like a, 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 a foreshadowing of the second one. Um, yeah, yeah, Tom says uh, a combination of Turkish curiosity and the fact that the stone is glowing with a heart of fire um, yeah, who wouldn't want to you know, figure out a little bit more of that, just as I can perfectly understand uh, Pippin's, um, Pippin's desire to huck a stone down the well in Moria I too would be really curious, does it have a bottom? how far down does it go, really? Um, I'd be pretty curious too, I have to say I'd be pretty tempted to pitch a stone into that also Um ridiculous as it is under the circumstances. Um, it's actually a scene I really didn't like um, in, uh, in, in the Fellowship of the Ring film version when he, like, totally accidentally makes this thing, uh, you know, this really noisy, uh, you know, skeleton in armor fall into the well. Um, mostly because, it, again, it completely lost the entire spirit of that. The whole point is his deliberate choice. You know, his curiosity and his deliberate choice to toss the stone down the well uh, in order to find out what's down there. Um, so, uh, you know, again, that's... And that's actually a really good illustration of the kind of complete shifting of the ground of scenes that they do so much less of in the Hobbit films. It's a good illustration, actually, what I like better about the Hobbit films than the Lord of the Ring films. But anyway, I digress. Um, I... So again, the way that that sets up the Palantir scene, I think, is is uh, is very important. Um, okay, uh, let me uh, go on because that's not even that's not even on my slides here. Uh, so let, let me let me move on to a, a, a couple passages that I didn't get a chance to talk about. Um, uh, oh yeah, April, that's a really great point. Uh, speaking of the Hobbit movie, she's recalling Bilbo's tweaking of the spider's web. Um, I was thinking of Pippin there, too. Uh, that seemed like a very a very tookish moment. A very f- fool-of-a-took moment, uh, April, as you say. Um, yeah, I was, I was totally thinking of that passage uh, when, I was, when I was watching the films there. It's almost like they're trying to make up for screwing it up with Pippin in the Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> but anyway, um, and interesting in that context with that, at that moment, him being especially tookish. But anyway, I'm totally stopping thinking about it. Um, uh, anyway, l- let's move on to, as I said, a couple passages that I skipped that I was really sorry to. I want to look back at Pippin and Mary's oaths that they swear, um, both of them uh, uh, swearing to serve Denethor and Theoden, respectively. Uh, and I think that these two passages are uh, uh, are 
well, they're very interesting. Of course, they're very different. Uh, here's Pippin's oath to Denethor. Here do I swear fealty and service to Gondor, and to the lord and steward of the realm, to speak and to be silent, to do and to let be, to come and to go, in need or plenty, in peace or war, in living or dying, from this hour henceforth, until my lord release me, or death take me, or the world end. So say I, Peregrine, son of Paladin, of the Shire of the Halflings. And this do I hear, Denethor, son of Ecthelion, lord of Gondor, steward of the High King, and I will not forget it, nor fail to reward that which is given, fealty with love, valor with honor, oath-breaking with vengeance. Then Pippin received back his sword and put it in its sheath. Um, one very small side thing I would say. This is actually the site of, of what I think is the biggest single mistake that Robert Inglis makes uh, in his re in his wonderful reading of the Lord of the Rings, which I love, uh, the only unabridged audio recording of the Lord of the Rings, he does both of those peregrines in both both of those paragraphs in Pippin's voice, um, and obviously the second one is Denethor, um, but anyway, um, uh, that's that's by the by. One thing, of course, that I can't forbear to mention is the style of this. Uh, I, this is a gorgeous oath stylistically. Um, notice the pairings, right? You know, we have this structure of twos and threes that goes all the way through. Um, you don't only swear service to Gondor, but to Gondor and to the Lord and Steward of the Realm, right? So you've got the, the doubling there, and then you've got the pairs. Um, he promises to do three pairs of things. To speak and to be silent, to do and to let be, my favorite pairing, to come and to go. Um, uh, and I, I, I don't think that's a reference to Through the Looking Glass, but I always, always makes me think of it when the White King says the area has two servants, one to come and one to go. Um, anyway, in need or plenty, in peace or war, in living or dying, from this hour henceforth, until my lord release me, or death take me, or the world end. So we get the three... Th three pairs of things he promises to do in the four different conditions, right? In either need or plenty, peace or war, living or dying, from this hour henceforth, in the present and in the future, right? Even that last one is a pairing. And then ending with the three conditions uh, which will terminate his service. My lord, release me, or death take me, or the world end. I love that. I've always loved that last one. Like, you know, we um, we uh, we have to include that possibility that the world will end uh, uh, before uh, before either of the other two things occurs, um, and then Denethor's response um, also has uh, focuses on the three there, right? But uh, the, the both the pairings, the, the the groups of two and three, we got the three pairs. I will match. So, you know, Pippin is promising to do either of these two things, right? So his, his, his promise is, in this sense, sort of unconditional, right? That he promises to do all of these, to, you know, both to speak and to be silent, to do and to let be, to come and to go, you know, in all of these, you know, diverse, you know, pairs of opposites of circumstances. Um, it makes it explicitly, you know, through all of these pairings and groupings, it makes it a completely unrestricted vow, that he is taking. You know, I will promise to do and not do all things that I do and not do under all circumstances from now on 
until you release me or I die or the world ends. And, um, uh, yeah, that, as, uh, Alyssa points out, I was actually thinking about that this last time through, uh, also, um, Alyssa says, I used to think, or the world end very drastic, but not so much if you think about the origins of this society, uh, with the downfall, the downfall of Numenor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also the fact that they're living under the shadow, you know, I, I think of the, I was thinking of this in the, the conversation, uh, conversation, um, between Faramir and Eowyn, right? Um, you know, when they think they're facing the end of the world right now, I mean, uh, when Pippin takes this oath, the world could end like any time now, right? Um, so, so, you know, it, in, in some ways it seems like a reflection of the, uh, the very imminent sense of doom that, uh, the Gondorians have li- been living under, uh, especially of late. Um, and then, as I say, Denethor's response um, is not equally unconditional, right? That is to say, we don't have a reciprocal oath sworn back to Pippin. Um, and 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 I, you know, that might seem like an odd thing to say. Well, of course not. Pippin is swearing to serve him. Why would the Lord um, swear, uh, you know, a reciprocal vow to him? Well, because that's how that's how feudalism works in theory. Um, not that both of them swear the same vows to each other, but it, that it's a mutual binding to each other and that both sides um, ha- mutually have responsibilities um, and swear to be true to the promises they are each making to each other. They don't swear the same promises to each other, but they both swear promises to each other. Notice that the steward's half of this vow <clears throat> is in this sense entirely one-sided. That is, he hears the oath, first of all, so I, I, I'm, you know, I, I, he's like, you know, ratifying it, um, you know, I'm confirming the existence of this vow that you just made, and stating that I'm not going to forget it, and I'm not going to fail to reward it. Um, that's all he promises to do, not forget, and not to fail to reward, but of course, reward is being used in a very broad sense here, right? I will not fail to give your actions their proper retribution. Um, I will reward fealty with love, valor with honor, and oath-breaking with vengeance. <clears throat> Again, no, a very unilateral promise from Pippin, a not very, a not unilateral promise from Denethor. I will only promise to give you what you have deserved. Um, yeah, so in this way we can see a very, you know, not only the highly structured and formalized, and again, I would say gorgeous, um, syntax of the oath, um, but um, it's, uh, but again, it shows you something, not only in its sort of formality, but in its content about the, na- about sort of the the status of things in Gondor. Um, and uh the fact of um, the steward being mentioned in both halves, um, to Gondor and to the Lord and Steward of the Realm, and this do I hear, Lord of Gondor, Steward of the High King, um, uh, makes one wonder, certainly makes me wonder, um, how, how old uh, is, the, is the, 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 the verbiage here in this oath. It has a sense of antiquity, certainly a sense of, 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 of long formality. doesn't sound like something Denethor is making up on the spot for Pippin to recite. Um, but does it go back as far as the kings? Is this just a stewardly oath? Uh, I wonder. We don't have any, of course, evidence either way. Um, but it's hard for me to imagine Aragorn making 
anyone swear an oath exactly like this, but it does seem to fit Denethor, I would say. Um, April, yeah, if the king were there, you'd swear to the king. But again, I'm not even sure you'd swear to the king just like this, or at least that he his response would be just like this. Um, uh, yeah, it seems to me... I don't know, this seems to me a very... Um, a very sort of Denethorian uh, kind of oath. Now, a couple of people have been asking about just sort of oaths uh, in general um, that, uh, it, you know, uh, the Silmarillion might have taught us to be a little bit leery of oaths, uh, which seem to uh, not work out very well most of the time. Um, yes, though, I mean, of course, you could even argue um, in this instance we have that same issue, right? That is, Pippin is swearing this oath, um, and he keeps it technically. Pippin is not, by the letter of the law, an oathbreaker, because Denethor does release him from his service. So, it, you know, until my lord release me. Okay, so all bets are off. You know, that, like, speaking and being silent thing no longer applies fortuitously, um, because... And of course, even there, he technically, Denethor technically said that he could go to the Grey Fool if he wanted to. Um, so again, you know, Pippin, not technically an oathbreaker, but his actions certainly uh, around the pyre of Denethor, not um, in the spirit of obedience, certainly, of Denethor's will. Baragond, of course, uh, drawn by Pippin into explicit oathbreaking uh, in order to do the right thing, and we talked about that a good deal when we uh, were reading that passage um, earlier on in this class. Um, but, it, but it does, I think, validate the question. Um, you know, are these oaths really a very good thing? Um, um, but Robert, you're right, by the way, to point out that the oath here is first to Gondor uh, and then to the Lord and, and Steward of the Realm. Though the structure of the oath makes that feel like a, a um, like a, I mean, it's a, it's a pairing. That is to say, it's not like you know, first to Gondor and second to the Lord and Steward of the Realm. Um, fealty and service to Gondor and to the Lord and Steward of the Realm. Um, Gondor and the Lord of Steward and Gondor and the Lord and Steward sounds to me like fealty and service, um, which are not synonymous. They are two different things, but it's um, it seems to me that the sense of it is that they functionally are the same thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Let's look, by contrast, at Mary's oath. I have a sword, said Mary, climbing from his seat and drawing from its black sheath his small bright blade. Filled suddenly with love for this old man, he knelt on one knee and took his hand and kissed it. May I lay the sword of Mariotic of the Shire on your lap, Theoden King, he cried. Receive my service, if you will. Gladly will I take it, said the king, and laying his long old hands upon the brown hair of the hobbit, he blessed him. Rise now, Mariadoc, esquire of Rohan, in the of the household of Meduseld, he said. Take your sword and bear it unto good fortune. As a father you shall be to me, said Mary, for a little while, said Theoden. Um, now the difference in the tenderness and affection of this 
oath-taking is, uh, is quite clear. Arthur, I think you're absolutely right to point out the significance of the motivations here. Mary um, is motivated with, by love. He is uh, filled suddenly with love. It is a spontaneous act of love and affection for Theoden that uh, compels his oath. In a sense, Mary is only formalizing with words something that would have been true anyway, right? Um, it reminds me, in fact, of how um, Tolkien describes Pippin's reaction to Faramir, right? When he sees Faramir and realizes that this is someone that men would follow, that he would follow, and he finds himself, you know, crying out and cheering. He doesn't have to swear any oath, right? Um, he uh, does the right thing by Faramir. He saves Faramir's life, um, not because he's sworn any oath. But again, so for Mary, um, you know, at this point, whether this ceremony happens or not, Mary is going to be following Theoden. He's going to be serving Theoden. Um, so here we have the ceremony being merely an outward formalizing of what has already happened, essentially, in Mary's own heart, in Mary's own conviction. As Arthur points out, um, uh, as Arthur points out, um, Pippin's motivation is almost the opposite. <clears throat> um, before Right before uh, Pippin swears his oath, he is stung by Denethor's words. He's moved uh, by pride. He's irked by Denethor. Denethor has just um, been uh, speaking slightingly and suspiciously uh, of him uh, and of uh, and of the companions. So, um, so yeah, his his motivations are are very widely different uh, from Mary's motivations. Um, so I do. So that that's obviously. I think that that's a that's a very very important point. Um, even the pretenses under which Pippin enters into this are quite different, um, very different uh, from Mary's. The other thing I think you know I can't help but think of uh, the Anglo-Saxon poem, The Wanderer. Here, one of the things that really marked uh, the Anglo-Saxons, not that of course the ancient English have any actual cultural connection with the Rohirrim other than their language. Uh, it's uh, completely no relation, right? So when you're thinking about the Rohirrim, don't think about the Anglo-Saxons because it's there's absolutely... No, remember, he said this very clearly in Appendix F. It is absolutely no... Nothing to see here, as Scott says. As you can tell, I'm being ironic. I, I, I think that that, uh, that passage in Appendix F is, is it's a very famous passage um, when he uh, forswears any kind of connection um, and lists the kinds of things in which, the, the ways in which they're not similar to the Anglo-Saxons. And of course, they're the very ways in which they're quite similar uh, to... Uh, to, to the Anglo-Saxons. I've, I think I've, I've explained before why I believe that Tolkien said that. Um, because it sounds, initially, it sounds almost insincere. I mean, like, how could he possibly uh, mean that? You know, what, what could he, why could he be saying that to deny something which is so obviously, uh, uh, which is so obviously the case? Um, and my, my explanation of that, which I'll give again, is that I think that he is basically forswearing it for sort of technical and scholarly purposes. That is to say, yes, of course the Rohirrim are just like the Anglo-Saxons, but they're not exactly like what we know for sure about the Anglo-Saxons. They are exactly like Tolkien guessed 
the Anglo-Saxons were. And you can look at, you know, you, if you read the work of scholars like Tom Shippey in The Road to Middle-earth, if you, you know, read people like My Michael Drought, they will be able to point out to you the moments where Tolkien is, through his depiction of the Rohirrim, um, speculating, where he is putting forward theories and opinions that he had about the Anglo-Saxons and about their culture, which he can't prove, um, and for which, in some cases, there's not really very much clear evidence. You know, it's it's he could never say this in a scholarly paper uh, because he couldn't prove it. He just kind of thought it or guessed or speculated or liked to think about this. This is sort of how he, you know, the 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 the, the version of them he had made into what, what what he thought made sense, even if there's no clear evidence uh, to prove it. So he uh, he he doesn't say because so, so if he said, oh yeah yeah no they're just like the Anglo Saxons, he would be committing himself as a scholar now, you know certainly in the eyes of of, of other scholars in the field to saying that he really believes those things to be historically accurate. He knows he can't prove it. So he's like, no, no, nothing to see here, right? I, I, I officially, any any connection between the Rohirrim and any other uh, culture of the ancient British Isles is completely um, coincidental and in the mind of the, in, in, in the eyes of the, of the beholder. Um, Sarah, yes, exactly. He was writing Anglo-Saxon fan fiction. That's precisely what Tolkien was doing. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, the Rohirrim are one big piece of Anglo-Saxon fan fiction. Um, uh, sure, why not? Yeah. Um, uh, but, but again, it's not scholarship, and Tolkien was very meticulous about that. He wouldn't. He did not want to put things out um, and label them as scholarship if he couldn't prove it, if he didn't have really good evidence, much better evidence than he had. So... It's just fiction, right? Just fiction, just making stuff up here. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that, I believe, is why he says he denies what is so manifestly true of them. So anyway, back to The Wanderer, that Anglo-Saxon poem, which, of course, does not have anything to do with Rohirrim. Um, in that poem, one of the really striking images, one of the things that I know my own students always found most striking when I taught that poem was the image when the the wanderer is a poem about it's it's a it's a lament um from you know a, a sole survivor uh from his uh from his clan from his from his people who's out you know now wandering as an exile and he's thinking back to his uh to his lord and to his land and to what he's lost um it's a fascinating poem it's the same poem of course that the uh that the lines um, you know, we looked at the poem in the Two Towers class, the, um, you know, Where Now the Horse and the Rider. Um, that poem is based on a portion uh, of uh, The Wanderer, um, a much closer analysis of which is is, is uh, very fruitful, more close analysis, that is, than I did, a closer comparison than I did uh, in the Two Towers class. But um, in that same poem... The wanderer talks about his lord, um, who's now dead, his king, uh, his ring giver, and um, the image that's always so striking to people is that when he recalls his king, what he recalls is sitting in the hall, in the mead hall, with his king, and laying his head upon the lap of his king. Um, that is, it's like he remembers snuggling with his king. Um, it's these gestures of physical affection in his king's hands. Um, it is clear that, first of all, it's it's very obvious from almost all of 
medieval literature, that the medievals were much more physically demonstrative of their affection than we are. Um, we like to think ourselves very liberated uh, and uh, medievals very, uh, very constrained. It was completely the opposite, um, as far as I can see. Um, friends uh, and family members uh, would uh, hug and kiss much more, certainly, uh, than we do. Mouth-to-mouth -mouth kisses were very common uh, in families among friends. It was something you did, certainly something that was actually formalized. A mouth-to-mouth -mouth kiss was an explicit part um, of the oath of fealty um, in the feudal system in the Middle Ages. Um, that's one of the things that it's... it's uh, um, there are a couple times in medieval wit where you'll get uh, a male-to-male, mouth-to-mouth kiss. And modern readers are always wanting to be like, ooh, homoeroticism, and like, okay, maybe, but actually what it is is an allusion to, you know, certainly what it would have conjured up in the mind of the medieval readers is that this is a, this is a, this is a feudal moment. Um, you know, so when the god of love kisses the lover in the romance of the rose on the mouth, um, it's not uh, it's not really primarily an erotic moment at all. It is a moment of of him accepting his fealty and his becoming, uh, his his uh, his becoming his man. Yeah, Robert is quoting um, uh, the passage where uh, where uh, Saint Paul talks about greeting all the brothers with a holy kiss uh, in the epistles. Absolutely, um, that's that's uh, that's uh, definitely part of the part of the thing, um, uh, part of the tradition. So anyway, here I think we're getting another one of those little glimpses of Tolkien fictionally depicting um, a scene like that, showing the kind of affection that um, might have existed, um, that seems to have existed um, between lords and their servants, lords and their thanes um, in the Anglo-Saxon culture. Mary doesn't go quite so far as putting his head in the lap uh, of Theoden, right? But he does kneel before him uh, and kiss his hand. He does, he is physically demonstrative, but he kisses the hand uh, of Theoden, and then Theoden lays his hands upon his head. Um, so it's still actually very close to that, uh, to that scene. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Carolyn, that's a, it's a fascinating point. Um, Carolyn points out that Denethor's part of the vow says that he'll reward fealty with love, um, which he clearly doesn't feel love, uh, towards Pippin. Um, uh, with Mary and Theoden, uh, it is full fealty with great love. Yeah, and you notice it's like the other way around, right? Um, Denethor says, I will reward fealty with love. If you show fealty to me, I'll give you love in return. And we might perhaps feel a bit dubious as to how fully Denethor is uh, prepared to follow through on that particular element of the oath that he, Denethor, has just taken. However, um, Theoden doesn't reward fealty with love, right? Um, the, the love comes first and the fealty comes second. The fealty is merely an expression, an overflowing of that love, which seems to be, which seems to be felt on both sides. Theoden um, is showing as much affection for Mary as Mary is showing for affection here. Um, yeah. Now, of course, um, you know, as... Uh, Sorry, Scott, your comment is just sort of making me think here. Scott says, Denethor thinks Pippin has something to prove, and actually he kind of does. It's true. I mean, on the one hand, you can say um, Pippin is not only an unknown, quanti uh, an unknown quantity for Denethor, he is in some sense a doubtful quantity uh, because of the, the, the sort of the, the questionable circumstances in which he's arriving. Um, 
But it's not like Theoden and Mary have a long-standing relationship, right? I mean, they've not known each other that much longer than Pippin and Denethor have. A little bit, but not much longer. Um, so, um, I still think that the uh, um, the relation... The, you know, you think about the response that Theoden has to Mary and Pippin compared to the response that Denethor has. Um, and it's uh, I, again. I think it still does clearly illustrate the difference. Um, the difference between them. Um, now, Brandon makes it makes a uh, a fascinating point. Um, they, you know, the, there's no explicit swearing to Theoden as a person, only to Rohan and the household of Medusel. Notice that. Um, and that's I'm not sure Brandon not exactly say it that way. Mary is swearing to him, right? May I lay the sword of Mary out of the Shire on your lap, Theoden King? Receive my service, if you will. From Mary, it is an entirely personal declaration. Mary doesn't say anything about uh, um, serving Rohan and the household of Meadowseld. When Theoden receives it, he receives it not to himself, um, but to Rohan and the household of Meadowseld in general. Right? That is, he now places... Mariotic. Rise now, Mariotic, Esquire of Rohan of the household of Meduseld. That is to say, I am now naming you, right? I, I, am, I, am, I am explaining now what your name and position is in this realm because you have sworn. But the oath is still from Mary to him, right? Which, you know, Mary then confirms afterwards when he is... Uh, um, uh, when he is, uh, you know, when he's offering him his sword, and then afterwards, as a father, you shall be to me. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Arthur, that it is interesting. I think you know, Brandon. I do. Th I think you're onto something there, though, with that connection. Um, and I, I'm thinking in similar directions to what Arthur is here. Um, uh, Arthur says, for that, and it's not about him; it's about the realm. For Denethor, not so much. Um, yeah, the oath that Pippin takes is much more realm-based, but to Denethor, it's personal, right? D you know, Denethor is thinking more about himself. Um, with Theoden, the oath is personal, um, but he thinks of... But it is, for Theoden, sort of the gateway to Mary's inclusion in the larger realm. Um, he now has a place and a title in Rohan. He now belongs there. Um, and his... You know, Theoden's being as a father to Mary makes him like all of the rest of them. Um, he's now one of them, not necessarily in a unique position. Um, uh, and again, with Denethor, it's not... Pippin does not now really belong. Um, even though he may say he has become a man of Gondor now, right? Um, and in a sense, that's true. Um, certainly not from Denethor's point of view, who still considers him and speaks of him uh, as a spy in his very chamber. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Alyssa points out, um, thinking about Aemir uh, and Aragorn. Aemir says he loved Aragorn when he, uh, since he first sprang out of the grass and later becomes his vassal. Is that similar? Y yeah, in, in a sense, yes. I mean, of course, it's not... I mean, the relationship between Aemir and Aragorn is Aragorn you know, uh, sort of confirms and openly expresses uh, in his words to Aemir after, you know, at, at the end. He says, you know, with us there can be no word of, um, uh, you know, of duty, or, you know, we are brothers, he says. Um, 
Yes, but they are brothers, one of whom is the vassal and one of whom is the liege lord. Uh, uh, you know, politically, there's no question about that. Um, but yeah, so so it's it's not it's it's not exactly the same as with Mary in the sense that his desire to swear fealty emerges. You know, is is, is just an outward expression of the love that he feels. Um, but certainly, the associ- you know, the, the 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 connection there with the fact that Aemir. Um, when he re-swears, uh, you know, the oath of Aeorl to Aragorn, um, he is certainly swearing that in love, um, and so we have that uh, we have that similar, not identical, but similar link there um, that I think is really that I think is really important. Um, okay, lots of um, lots of more good things that we could say about this, but I I want to I want to make sure I try to get on to other people's questions, but before we leave Mary and Pippin beside, I had almost forgotten about this, I meant to show this like a month ago, um, but almost completely forgot about this. You may remember when, uh, back in the first class, I think, of The Return of the King, we were talking about Pippin, uh, and his change, you know, the way that he is changing there, and you know, how we see things from his perspective and the way that Tolkien uh, sort of shows us those things. You may recall um, those passages, the description of the white tree, the dead white tree, uh, and all that. Um, in the context of that conversation, remember, I was talking about sort of wondering uh, about the, the, the way in which their names are used, if we can see any changes in how, uh, the, you know, what, what percentage of the time they're referred to uh, as Peregrine, he's re- referred to as Peregrine versus Pippin, um, or uh, Mariotic instead of Mary. Well, I have a chart. Thanks to Ed Powell, for putting together the chart for me. Here it is. We have actual data. Ready? Okay, so let me just make sure we all understand the chart. Uh, so this is the percentage of the time. The y-axis is the percentage of the time. Uh, They're referred to as Mariotic or Peregrine, respectively. Uh, and uh, and the x-axis here is books one through six uh, of of the Lord of the Rings. Of course, book four is a, is 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 a bad data point uh, since neither Merry nor Pippin is in or is referred to in book four. Of course, which is Frodo and Sam's trip to to Mordor. So hardly surprising that that data point obviously can be ignored. See what I'm going to do now is I'm going to um, I'm going to to do what all good uh, 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 statisticians do with their data, and that is flagrantly cherry pick it and massage it until it looks like I want it to look like. So, okay, so step one is to ignore book four here entirely. Um, and when we do that, uh, we see with Pippin, um, the main difference in the percentages, I think, that to me the most interesting thing is the difference between book three and book five. Um, not quite sure what to do with book two there. That's uh, 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 some kind of uncertain data there. Um, but I think it is interesting. To, again, if we ignore um, if we ignore book five and book four, in which he doesn't feature at all, we do get this this upward line, which does kind of confirm what I was thinking about Pippin anyway. Um, uh, increasing again, I have no explanation for book two. I'll have to think about that a little bit more. Um, Oh no! Wait, I remember what we can do to the, with, with with book two. Um, with book two, we can uh, we can we can. Uh, I I I I'm kind of going to put some. Uh, we need some error bars around the book two uh, because the sample size is much smaller. Uh, if I recall Ed's raw data accurately, um, 
the overall number of instances of the names is much smaller in book two uh, compared to book three and book five, um, or book one. So, therefore, the percentage... That, you know, it, when you're when you're looking at a percentage of a much smaller sample size, uh, it's a much less meaningful piece of data. So, okay, yeah. So the one that doesn't fit into my uh, theory, it's a little questionable. I have to say, I think we can, you know, we can kind of uh, kind of take the book two point with a grain of salt. Um, Mary, I don't know what to do about um, the very low percentage of Mariotic used in uh, book six, I find actually kind of puzzling, since of all of them, Mary is the one who I think grows up most dramatically. Um, you know, Mary becomes, uh, you know, takes a strong leadership position, um, especially during the scouring of the Shire and his return, and yet um, even in the whole context of, the, of that passage, even in the scouring of the Shire, he's still very consistently um, called called Mary. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Jean, Jean Sullivan says, we should take into account how many of, uh, of the book two data are Gandalf saying Peregrine in exasperation. That should account for most of book two. Uh, yes, perhaps uh, the Gandalf exasperation factor combined with the small sample size gives this artificial inflation to the Peregrine rate, uh, to the Peregrine percentage there in book two. Um, nothing, nothing could be more likely, I think. Um, yeah, good. Uh, Sparrow had just said exactly the same thing, that uh, book two includes a lot of Gandalf yelling at him. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, and Peregrine is much better to yell at someone. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I agree. Um, Ed is uh, pointing out Sparrow, that he's he has out-Sparrowed Sparrow here in the line graph. Uh, and Ed, in turn, Sparrow had just said that she wanted to make sure that I pass along how much uh, she loves uh, your line graphs here. Um, uh, so yes, you know, there's, there's, there's certainly there's uh, more ways I think that we can filter this data in order to make it look more like I want it to look. Uh, so, you know, we can, I think we can still work on that. Um, but... Uh, but uh, yeah, Scott thinks that we could we could factor in how many times the name is used in a sentence that ends with an exclamation point. That we kind of factor that in. Uh, I think so. Yeah, Peregrine is very very much more. Um, uh, I agree. Satisfying thing to yell at somebody than Pippin, um, which is a very important factor, of course. Something which should always be taken into account when you name your children. I know that I did. Uh, I found that the uh, uh, the three-syllable first name followed by a monosyllabic middle name is a very effective uh, uh, cadence for discipline. Um, so uh, 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 that's 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 definitely something I have to take into account. Uh, my first son is Nicholas John. I see it's it's excellent. It works so well for uh, for for disciplinary purposes. The cadence has to be right. Uh, but anyway, um, so that's the that's the chart. As I said, the married data I find much more difficult. Uh, you've got the huge spike of Mariotics. I'm not quite sure what explains the Mariotic spike in Book 5. Um, uh, I mean, maybe his interaction with the Rohirrim. Um, but uh, <laughs> Tom is pointing out that my, my son's first and middle names have the same cadence as Fool of a Took. Coincidence? Mm, we'll see. We'll see. But yeah, I would think that if anything, if anything, uh, uh, 
explains the Mariotic spike in Book 5, it would be the Rohirrim factor. Um, that we get him interacting more with the Rohirrim, even just him being spoken of in context with the Rohirrim um, seems that it would correlate with that word uh, um, with that more often. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. And see, that's the kind of thing, actually, that I would kind of expect to be significant. Um, uh, that it's, just, it's exactly, thinking back to the appendices, thinking back to Appendix uh, uh, E and F, that's exactly the kind of thing that Tolkien is talking about. That when he is writing in modern English, not when he's giving the, you know, the Anglo-Saxon of, you know, the uh, the Rohiric language, but rather when he is giving the modern English, um, he is reminding us that throughout, you know, from, from, from beginning to end of The Lord of the Rings, it's a translation. It's an artificial thing. It's a translation into modern English from a different language. And so when he is translating different, he translates, he's translating often multiple languages and multiple dialects into the same thing, into modern English. Uh, and so he does reflect those things in some ways, in, in different ways, in different places. This is why he uses uh, very different diction and different word choice with the Rohirrim than he does um, with others, because he is trying to stay true to the flavor of their language, even through, you know, as a good translator would. Um, so, anyway, um, that's uh, that's why I would suspect that the correlation with Rohan could uh, perhaps produce uh, that that kind of uh, that kind of thing. But anyway, uh, so thanks, Ed, again for... And, and of course, I'm not at all doing justice uh, to the efficiency of Ed's work here. Um, uh, by... With it less than 15 minutes after the end of the class in which I said we should look at this data, it would be interesting to see a chart. He'd sent me a chart. Uh, so, uh, uh, I, again, thank you, Ed, for the data here. Um, okay. Uh, good. All right. Let me move on to the next question. Okay, Michael Lucero asks, I was wondering if you could talk about the lines at the very end of Homeward Bound, where Mary says, It seems almost like a dream that has slowly faded, but Frodo says, Not to me. To me it feels more like falling asleep again. I've always felt the same way after putting the book down at the end, going back to real life after such a rich and meaningful reading experience, and I wonder what Tolkien was trying to say with these lines. Um, this is, uh, those are really rich lines, Michael, um, and uh, I certainly don't know that I can do justice to what Tolkien was trying to say with these lines, but I can at least say some things that uh, they make me think of. Um, uh, first, I think that Michael is very right uh, to remind us of kind of the parallel with the reading experience, um, that uh, sort of imaginative investment in the fantasy world that Tolkien describes and talks about in On Fairy Stories um, is, I think, something which is, is, is paralleled with the adventures in his books. From the beginning, we see it with Bilbo, 
in there and back again, um, the way in which we as readers go along with Bilbo, and just as we begin in our world, invest ourselves in the book, and then reemerge to our world at the end, Bilbo's own career follows that same pattern, even to the extent of having him return to his mundane world at the end, but to have his mundane world enriched and changed and his own relationship by it altered for the better, uh, by the experience that he has had in that other world of adventure, so too we can find our own relationship and experience of the real mundane primary world around us enriched and changed by our experience in the fantasy world. So I think that that parallel um, is perfectly legitimate. The interesting thing here is the discrepancy between Mary and Frodo's two different experiences here. One other thing um, that I will point to before I try to come back and answer this and sort of what, how we're to understand the difference there in their experience. Um, within the context of the Lord of the Rings, we do have um, some precedence for thinking there's some... So, uh, this dreaming language doesn't come absolutely out of nowhere. We've had a bunch of dreams. There were dreams in The Hobbit. Remember uh, Bilbo's dream of Bag End in the Eagle's Eyrie? Um... Uh, and his dream also, his semi-prophetic, semi-waking um, consciousness dream in the Goblin Tunnels. That is, when, when in the do- Goblin Tunnels he has like a prophetic dream of what's actually happening in the waking world around him, that, that, that the crack opens in the walls. Anyway, um, uh, we also, of course, in the, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, Frodo is the dreamer. He dreams several times in The Lord of the Rings, especially back in The Fellowship of the Ring. Remember his dream in the House of Tom Bombadil. Um, so he, he he dreams of, this, of the tower in the sea. He dreams of Gandalf um, uh, in Orthanc. Um, uh, he has visions also, of course, in the Mirror of Galadriel, which are not exactly the same as dreams. Um, but... Um, though there seems to me, anyway, to be some similarity in the descriptions of them and, and, and uh, sort of the things that they show and the ways that they point. Um, so, again, we, sh- we should be recalling the actual instances of dreaming that we've seen uh, in order to perhaps help us to understand this a little bit more. Um, now, uh, one other thing then that I would say about this difference. Frodo says... It doesn't feel like a dream that's fading. To me, it feels like falling asleep again. Now, remember, what they're talking about is this crossing of frontiers, right? Like with Bilbo, they too are going back again. Remember, Frodo at the beginning said that he doesn't think his story is going to be like Bilbo's. Um, You know, this is no there and back again journey that he's going on. He's going to go there and never come back again as far as he can see. Well, he does come back again. Right? Turns out his forebodings in the beginning of, of, of the Fellowship of the Ring are unfounded. His journey is also a there and back again journey. Sort of. Right. Um, what he finds, unlike Bilbo, is that he never can go back again. You may remember if, uh, if you've read my Hobbit book, which I don't assume, but if you have read it, um, you may remember that's my reading of Bilbo's song when Bilbo sings the Roads Go Ever Ever On song at the end of The Hobbit, um, is one of the things that I see going on in that poem is Bilbo being anxious, Bilbo being uncertain. Can you really go home? Um, Are things going to be the same again? Can you go back? 
what happens when feet that wandered uh, when that wandering have gone turn at last to home afar what happens when the eyes uh, uh, that you know have seen uh, you know fire and, and and horror in the halls of stone look again on meadows green uh, you know and fields and streams they once have known then what right um, it's right before he gets home it's just before he returns to the hill um, that he that he sings that and sort of asks those questions which aren't answered uh, in the poem, right? I mean, it's 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 kind of an open-ended poem the way that Bilbo sings it. Well, um, for Bilbo, he was okay, right? He was changed, lost his respectability, but he can go home. Frodo can't go home. For Frodo, there's no returning. Um, for him, now coming back is not an awakening; it's falling asleep again. Um, what is real, what is more real, and what is less real. Um, think of Sam also and his belonging, right? He belongs in the Shire. He is supposed to be, you know, he's supposed to be whole, um, Frodo tells him, right? Um, he belongs there. Think of Sam's own words about, you know, how the elves belong in Lothlorien even more than elves belong, or than, than hobbits belong in the Shire. Um, um, but, um, Frodo doesn't belong there anymore. It's not his place anymore. He has given it up. He's lost it. Um, he's sacrificed it so that others could have it. Um, for him, it feels like falling asleep again. I'm reminded also of Bilbo nodding off in sleep in Rivendell. Um, Frodo's kind of like that now, living in a different place. Um, the other connection that I can't help but make here um, when Frodo's talking about this is to what Gandalf calls the other side um, uh, when in, in his conversation with uh, Frodo in chapter one of book two when Frodo awakes after his after the, the, the Fords of Bruinen and he's talking about um, Frodo nearly going into the wraith world. That's where we get all that stuff about, you know, the physical world and the, and the, the spirit world, the wraith world, um, into which Frodo had almost been drawn by the power of the wound and by the sliver of the knife left in the wound. Um, and he was recalled. Um, and to the, uh, to, uh, the world of dreams that are not quite dreams, that the place where Aragorn goes to fetch Faramir back, um, which is rather oddly described. Um, and then again, Frodo is almost... He, he's hes almost gone over. <clears throat> he's pretty darn close to Wraithdom uh, by the end, uh, when he claims the ring uh, and makes it... And, and it turns him invisible. Remember Gandalf comments on this back in book, chapter 1 of book 2, um, when he says that he may become like a light, Right? Um, like like glass with uh, you know um, he might become emptied himself he might just become a vessel um, his own self might become almost transparent um, that's what he's been through that's what he's gone through and there's not so much of him left um, they Merry and Pippin and Sam can leave the high things um, and this world of adventure and go back to their solid um, you know their solid hobbit lives in the Shire 
Frodo can't. He can't leave it behind because he's not entirely there anymore. Um, there's a sense in which, um, you know, as Gandalf warned Frodo could happen uh, with possession of the ring, you know, that you become in the end invisible permanently. Um, Frodo hasn't become invisible permanently, permanently, but it's like part of him, um, uh, uh, like part of him can. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah, interesting. Uh, um, Sarah, I think you're right to point out um, his phrasing, uh, falling asleep again, makes it seem as though Frodo thought his previous life in the Shire was also a dream. Sarah, or almost more like that's how it seems to him now, right? Um, think of his words on Mount Doom. Um, that how he can't remember these, you know, when Sam is asking if he can remember these things from the Shire, and Frodo says, "Well, well, no, Sam, I, I, I can't. Right? I know these things are, but I can't, I can't remember them." Um, again, that's it's it's another sense in which he's lost them, um, and another sense in which, by the way, another moment in which I think the Lord of the Rings films um, didn't get it right. Um, it's kind of moving in the film when Frodo, after he's gotten his finger bit off, can remember strawberries in the Shire and all those things. But that's not how it is in the book. Um, uh, he's lost them. And not that he's permanently lost strawberries, but you, you see what I mean? Like there, there are parts of him that can't be healed. He's lost parts of himself and isn't doesn't get them back. Um, that seems to be part of the part of the issue, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm just scanning through your comments here. Um, Let's see. Uh, let me actually... I'm going to jump ahead because um, it's related to this uh, to another question um, which I, I unaccountably was shuffling around the order of my slides and I totally messed them up. Uh, but... Uh, but I'll just, it's a very short question, so I'll just say it. Um, Diego was asking about uh, asking for comparison of the endings of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and how the end of the journey, uh, how at the end of both journeys we have a usurped home. Um, uh, you know, Bilbo comes back to the auction and, and, and uh, Frodo comes back to find Bag End, which he himself sold, uh, so it's not technically usurped, but of course it's been usurped by Saruman. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we, we, we do kind of see that. And as uh, Alyssa was just reminding me, um, you know, these things, these, uh, uh, Diego calls them usurped homes. Alyssa calls them pilfered homes, which I also quite like. Um, in both cases, um, Alyssa said it speaks to the, sort of symbolically, to the anxiety and to that question, is it possible to return? Will your home be there? Or will it really be your home? Will it have been... Um, um, 
will 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 it really have been uh, uh, would still be yours again with Bilbo we get a very mild version of that right it's still his home it's just the stuff's been sold right so all of his things he's got to try to reclaim all of his possessions not all of which he gets back and some of which he has to buy back um, uh, it's still his home but but all those familiar things that he's been longing for are being sold off um, here in the Lord of the Rings the the difference is much more drastic, right? You turn home and you find Mordor, even there. Um, you know, this is Mordor, one of its works. So, uh, um, so we, you know, Neil, as, as as Neil says, it's a it's a larger scale um, takeover here. Not only uh, not only Bag End, but the Shire, and not only Bag End a little bit, but Bag End much more drastically and damaged much more horribly and much more. Um, uh, much more, uh, um, much more permanently, though not completely permanently. Yeah, good. As Sharon has just said, the whole Shire has been usurped. Exactly. Um, so it does seem to be broadened in that sense. Um, but again, I think you know, in in with Bag End, um, with Bag End, we see Frodo's own struggle. You know, his own situation sort of made physical, right? Um, Bag End can be restored, and the Shire can be restored, um, but it's not exactly the same, right? Um, uh, it, it, it's... It is, you know, it is blessed, and through Sam's forestry work, it's 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 really lovely. Um, but it's also it's also different. We see the Shire being enriched, right? The, you know the, the the difference with the Shire, um, I think you know through Sam's efforts and through the blessings of Goadriel, uh, we see uh, you know in the Gaffer's words, "All's end, all's well as ends better." Um, but uh, you know with Frodo, that image of Bag End destroyed um, is uh, is 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 really poignant. Um, and you know, for him again, for him, the restoration is is falling back to sleep again, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, um, Alyssa is making a really interesting connection. I won't go into too much detail on it because it involves a text which we haven't studied or read here. Um, that is the poem, the Sea Bell, uh, that is in the connect the, that is in the collection, uh, the Adventures of Tom Bombadil, that was published in that collection later in Tolkien's life. Um, it's tagged Frodo's dream in that collection. Um, in that collection of poems, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, what Tolkien was doing was mostly taking poems that he had written earlier in his life, often much earlier, like four decades earlier, uh, and uh, revising them largely, and including them in this collection. Several of them are poems which were in The Lord of the Rings, so we get the, we get the Man in the Moon poem, we get the Oliphant poem, um, we get the Troll song, um, though, again, all three of those are based on poems that Tolkien had written uh, much earlier on in his life. But he puts a Middle-earth frame uh, in all of these things. So that is, he, he, he suggests that 
some of these uh, poems we can find are, are written by, you know, some are written by Bilbo and some are by Sam and some are by Frodo. Um, so he, he gives a kind of, uh, you know, Mid-Earth uh, uh, origin story for the, 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 the different poems in his introduction. He talks about this in his introduction to the adventures of Tom Bombadil. Um, Frodo's Dream is a tag attached to the sea bell um, uh, and thinking of distancing and alienation um, you can see why he did it um, the sea bell again that poem long predates um, if I'm recalling correctly it, it long predates the Lord of the Rings so I don't think it actually comes from that however um, it uh, uh, it certainly is a very interesting commentary upon this passage um, upon Frodo's return um, that he Tolkien connects uh, that return with the sea bell. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, if you don't have a copy of The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, uh, you should totally get one. Um, the Tolkien Reader is what I recommend, is the easiest, uh, most accessible place to get those poems. Um, get, the, get the Tolkien Reader, read uh, The Sea Bell, uh, and see what you think. It's quite a striking poem. Um, very different kind of trip to fairy than Frodo, in the end, gets uh, his much more pleasant and healing trip. But it's getting late, and I should move on. Okay, Yana was asking about Ents and Elves. <clears throat> they were known to the Eldar in ancient days, that is, the Ents. And to the Eldar, indeed, the Ents ascribed not their own language, but the desire for speech. Might that mean that when Treebeard talks about the Elves starting it, he means communication, and not necessarily making them walk and be sentient. Yana, that's how I've always understood that passage. This is, of course, uh, Yana's referring back to uh, the debate, which, you know, Tolkien fans will debate how exactly uh, did Ents come about. There seem to be two conflicting stories. Treebeard, uh, in Book 3, says that the Elves began it. They went around waking up the trees and teaching them all to talk. Um, that is, the ones that they woke up. Um, which seems to be at odds with the story uh, from uh, the Silmarillion about Ella and Yavanna. Um, I have never been deeply impressed by the so-called contradiction of those two uh, stories. I actually don't see any problem um, with uh, uh, the story unfolding in a way such that both of those things could easily be true. Um, that is to say, Yovana can very well have uh, uh, designed them and devised them, and the elves be the instrument of their awakening. Nothing would seem to me more fitting with the kind of uh, delegations during the creation and sub-creation process that we see all the way down the line uh, in uh, the Ainuindale and the Silmarillion. So, um, I've never had a particularly big problem with that. But Yana, um, more specifically, I, I do agree with you. This is kind of how I have always understood Treebeard there. Um, and I think in, in particular the fact that that's what Treebeard goes on to emphasize. They always wanted to talk to everything the old elves, right? And when he refers to his gratitude to the elves, he says they cured us of dumbness and that was a great gift, right? Um, he doesn't say they cured us of, you know, uh, uh, in you know, non-sentience. Um, so anyway, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, exactly. Scott, the Quindy are, you know, the people who speak, the talking people. Um, they, uh, they, they, it, it has always made, uh, um, 
Yes, yes, Yana. Dumbness as in muteness, not dumbness as in stupidity. Uh, yes, dumbness as in muteness, absolutely. Um, so they cured us of dumbness, they enabled us to talk, they taught us to speak. Um, so yes, I do, um, that's, that's how I've always understood that, that this comment in, um, in the appendix is, is perhaps um, d- designed to clarify that passage uh, from the Two Towers. Okay, very broad question, uh, an excellent question that Noam uh, Weiss has asked. Um, uh, If you'd like to talk about the tension between the aspects of losing oneself in the story versus the more removed point of view of The Lord of the Rings as a historical narrative, there are a few times that I feel the two are in conflict, in particular whenever a character improvises on the spot a song that is clearly tailored to the situation, and whenever a character has a prophetic moment. Which makes uh, which makes me think that this this is something that was edited in. Um, yes, I can definitely see the, the the conflict. So let me just sort of back up a second and make sure that the the terms of the of the question are clear. Um, the issue here is about the relation between how do we understand the Lord of the Rings? How do we receive this as a text? Okay. Um, is this supposed to be the spontaneous, you know, the, the, the dialogue that we get? Is this supposed to be the spon- you know, a faithful recording of the spontaneous dialogue, what these people actually said at the time when we're reading the book? Are we in the moment with these characters or not? Or are we reading something which is not even secondhand, but third, fourth, fifth, sixth hand, um, you know, a distant chronicle of what was actually happening? Um, uh the answer is the second. I mean, that's what we're told we're getting. Um, and if, in, you know, part of me wants to say, if we read it and have a problem with the fact that we're reading um, something which is an ancient chronicle and very far chronologically removed from the events, um, that's a... Uh, that's something which, uh, you know, uh, on, uh, on Twitter, I would give the hashtag modern people problems, right? <laughs> that is to say, in the Middle Ages, that's what books were, right? That's what history was called. Um, that is the idea of sort of the, the, the immediacy. And I talked about this a little bit in the last class. The fictional frame that the majority of modern novels use is a completely artificial construct, that is to say, it asks us to invest ourselves imaginatively into something that couldn't possibly happen. That somehow, um, the spontaneous utterances, not to mention the internal th- uh, thought processes of the people involved in the story, that we're somehow just there. That we're enabled to see it. In fact, that we're enabled to see it like we're watching it on TV. And frankly, I think that TV and film have had a huge impact on this convention uh, in fiction. Um, Pre-TV and pre-movies, it's not that this was never known, um, but it was, I think, um, a good deal less common. Um, That is, we don't have that sense... Because again, TV has taught us uh, to sort of consume narratives as if we just sort of have this... You know, like, 
you're watching a sitcom and most of the time you are supposed to imagine that you are somehow just peering in through a transparent wall into these people's uh, 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 unrealistically opulent New York apartment and, uh, and, and just seeing and overhearing the things that are going on. The mechanism you're not supposed to ask. Of course, there are some shows that will play with this, right? And, uh, and the mechanism will actually be part of the story, but that's very uncommon uh, in TV. Um, books have tended to follow in that same dimension. Again, it's not that this was a, a 20th century um, uh, invention. There certainly are a lot of 19th century novels which seem to operate in a similar kind of way, which do not have uh, a sort of a, con- a, a, a fictional construction of how this narrative has come down to us. But it was not the sort of only assumption. It, w- it was not really the default assumption. We still got things like the epistolary novel, uh, you know, the novel of, of uh, letters and diaries like uh, like Dracula um, or Jane Eyre or, um, or, or Pamela. Um, so, anyway, like I said, if, uh, I think to one extent, if Tolkien, if we asked Tolkien this and we said, you know, gosh, I have to admit, if I think about the whole Lord of the Rings as something which is just hearsay, you know, as uh, to think that, you know, the real Pippin didn't actually say the things that Pippin said, but rather this is just what legends have said that Pippin said. Um, gosh, that really kind of, uh, uh, you know, that really distances me from the story, and, and that, that really makes the whole experience really suffer. I'm not sure Tolkien would have all that much sympathy for that, necessarily. Because, again, that's the world he lived in, um, was the world in which that kind of distance... um, That kind of distance was uh, a fact of life, you know, was just sort of assumed. Um, So, yes, it was, you know, as uh, Tom was just saying, even in ancient histories, it was a convention for the historian to insert speeches that were invented, and everybody knew that and accepted it. Now, of course, a good historian tries to capture um, something that the historian would call a true account of that, right? But the concept of what was a true account um, was different for ancient and medieval historians than for modern historians. Um, They were not just trying to say only the things that they knew were actually said or the things that they knew actually occurred in exactly as they occurred, um, but would try to convey to the reader the sense of what they believed it would have been like. This is why, by the way, um, I get kind of frustrated sometimes by medieval historians who complain about uh, the inaccuracy of numbers, especially the numbers of combatants in, uh, in, in battles as they're described in medieval histories. You get a lot of modern historians who just get all snooty about this and are like, well, it goes without saying that medieval historians are completely unreliable, uh, when it comes to the numbers of, of combatants. Um, to which I respond, well, it depends on what you mean by unreliable, right? Um, Inaccurate in the sense that there no, were not, in fact, precisely or even anything close uh, to that, um, to that, uh, uh, to that number. Uh, yes, inaccurate in that sense. But I believe the medieval historian would argue accurate in a more significant sense. That is to say, the uh, historian was not trying to claim I have performed research and know that there were in fact this many human beings on that field at that time, but rather 
the numbers that I have described them convey to you what went on in that battle. Um, the you know the English might not have been outnumbered uh, quite as much as I said in my description of the Battle of Poitiers, but you know what? Um, my description more accurately captures what that battle meant and what happened on that day than a uh, a perfectly accurate description of the battle, uh, what a modern historian would call a perfect, perfectly accurate description. The point is, that kind of interpolation was normal, was accepted. That's part of what it meant to be a historian, um, not just somebody who is recording facts. Um... But anyway, yeah, Scott, as you pointed out, this is what we were talking about last time. Um, there are multiple places where we are told that this story is coming down to us through multiple generations of, 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 of manuscript um, transmission and revision. So we do have to, if we choose to think about it, we don't always have to think about it, but if we choose to think about it... Um, we do have to think that, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean... So, you know, moments uh, such as Amir's poetry on the battlefield, right? Um, when he, uh, you know, out of, out, uh, uh, um, out of doubt, out of dark, to the day's rising, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing... Um, did, in fact, Amir compose poetry to that effect at the time? Like, had we been there at the Battle of Pelennor Field, would we have heard him utter those staves? Uh, not necessarily. I don't think that we necessarily have to think that. But I don't think it takes anything away. Again, the fact that we like the idea of Amir composing those is on one level just as as much as to say... We think the storyteller, the you know the historian in this case, did a great job of capturing that. Um, however, the one thing uh, to to the second point that Noah makes there, I don't think prophetic moments have to be understood in that way. Um, that is to say that the moments of so-called prophecy or foretellings that you know Aragorn gives a couple times are merely the product of uh, uh, you know backwards revision of that kind. Of course, it's always easier uh, to attribute uh, prophetic foretellings to things after the fact, right? That's no doubt true, but I don't think that uh, the fact that these things are being tra transmitted to us afterwards need strip um, the story of the the, the, the marvel element there uh, in the foretelling that there it can still be a genuine predicting um, a record of a genuine predicting um, the part of the story that says Aragorn um, has occasional foretellings you know may be a faithful element of the story um, I don't think that it I don't think that it it is uh, necessarily cause for debunking um Okay. You know what? I'm not going to tell you how many slides I have. <laughs> um, right, Brandon or Frodo describing Sam's children. I agree. It's another example. All right. But anyway, I'm going to go on to slide number seven out of a certain number. Uh, okay. 
Why can Gandalf vanquish despair and bring hope to Theoden, but not to Denethor? Gandalf was given Narya by Círdan to rekindle hearts in a world that grows chill. Theoden has lost a son and given in to despair. It does not take Gandalf long to rekindle his heart. Denethor has lost a son and given in to despair. Why cannot Gandalf rekindle his heart? Sauron via the Palantir is better at despair inducement than Saruman via Wormtongue? Denethor is more powerful than Theoden, and better able to resist Gandalf, with glances like blades flickering from eye to eye as they fenced? Denethor combines despair with the sin of pride, and that is harder to overcome? Yeah, I lo- this, is a, I, this is a great question by Mark, uh, made the more great by the fact that he then proceeds to go on and suggest some excellent answers to this question. Um, of the three uh, theories that Mark puts forward at the end there... Um, I think that... Oh, and Mark's here tonight. Excellent. Good question, Mark, and excellent theories. Um, the... Uh, uh, the Sauron thing is significant, I think, but I wouldn't put the majority... I wouldn't lay the majority of the stress there. Um, I think it is... I, I think it is true... Denethor is more powerful than Theoden. Denethor is greater and so therefore has the greater potential for fall. We see this lots of times, right? How many times from the Silmarillion forward do we see that the one who is greater and more powerful is the one who tends to fall from Morgoth on down, right? Um, from, you know, Morgoth to Feanor to, you know, all the way through. Um, the one who is at the top of the heap is the one who is most likely to tumble all the way down. Um, uh, you can see a similar thing uh, in Dr. Seuss's Yertle the Turtle. But anyway, um, Denethor, uh, and I think that Mark particularly touches on the thing that I would point to as most significant, Uh, Denethor resists Gandalf, right? Um, Denethor is not buying what Gandalf is selling, and I don't think that Gandalf is going to, or even perhaps can, heal somebody against his will, right? Um... Denethor's defenses are up. Theoden's do not seem to be. Um, Theoden is more humble than Denethor, and I think that's why he accepts. He is very quick to say, it's not so dark, is it? If only Denethor had said, it's not so dark, right? But no, he was pretty convinced of how dark it was, right? And wasn't going to listen to anything else. Um, And that, of course, is also where the pride uh, where the pride then comes in. Um, Despair with pride is all, I mean is almost impregnable um, a more humble despair is more easily overcome um, yeah yeah um, Robert says but it was dark yes but it wasn't as dark as Denethor is as even Denethor thought it was uh, it's not that it wasn't dark but it wasn't nearly so dark. Again, um, as we can immediately see in the irony of Denethor's observation, um, you know, and even now, uh, you know, the wind, you know, the wind of thy hope cheats thee and, 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 uh, uh, you know, blows up from the south, a fleet with black sails. The horrible irony of the fact that he is pointing to the Eucatastrophe as, as evidence, uh, in support of his despair. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, look at how efficient I am. Whoa, not as efficient as that. Okay, sorry. 
Gandalf calls himself a steward, which in my understanding is a person that rules instead and in the name of someone else. Would this be Manwe or the Valar in general, or Eru? I know there's not much of a difference, but I always found Gandalf's identification as a steward very interesting. Um, yes, Yana, I agree. Um, I think that we're not necessarily... I mean, cause you're right, on the one hand, the statement, I am also a steward, does raise the logical question, whose steward are you, actually? Um, if you are this, you know, if you are the one who has been given delegated authority by the ruling power, which authority are we talking about? Um, uh, I, 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 I do think Manwe is the one in question. Um, that's, it is presumably Manwe who sent him back, um, uh, when he died. Um, but, I don't think that that is necessarily the only way to think about this. I d- that is, I don't think that steward of Manway is Gandalf's job description when he comes back to Middle-earth. Exactly. That is not in a political sense. Um, it's not like Manway is... Uh, because with the sending of the wizards, and more particularly with Gandalf's description and his role, the you know like the, the hope and healing thing we were just talking about... Um, his job description, if Gandalf had a business card, it wouldn't be steward of Manway, right? I mean, it wouldn't be, hi, I'm the delegated authority, uh, Manway's not here right now, uh, uh, he couldn't be bothered, he's over in Valinor, so I'm taking over Middle-earth as his steward until Manway comes back. Again, that would be a strict parallel uh, between Gandalf as steward and Denethor as steward, right? Um, But I think clearly... That's not um, that's not the case. I mean, I think that's certainly not the position that he is claiming for himself, or even the position that he has. Not even like he's just being humble. That's clearly not the position he has. The the wizards were sent not to rule, um, but to advise. More, I take when he says, you know, for I also am a steward. Um, it is Yana, as Yana is saying now, not in his question there. Um, uh, a show of humility, yes, in the sense that he's not, um, he, he's um, not claiming the rule of any nation. Um, but, you know, I think of, you know, when he, Gandalf, is giving that speech, he talks about, you know, all of the, th- all of the good things in the world, all things that, you know, that, that grow and may blossom, these things are his care, right? Um, Gandalf being a... He's a steward, not in the sense that he's been given delegated authority, um, like the stewards of Gondor, but rather he is a steward in the sense of he is the one who is the caretaker. He's the one whose job it is to take care of things. Um, That is, I think, the sense in which he's talking about being a steward, um, which was presumably the sense of what the term steward meant... um, when the stewards were just stewards before they became ruling stewards, um, in a sense, ruling steward um, is like a is 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 almost not quite a paradox. Um, it's again, the steward isn't a synonym for servant, um, but a steward is a servant, and so the ruling stewards that phrase is slightly paradoxical. Um, 
and I think deliberately so. That is, I think you know, it's it's not a, a sort of an issue of the stewards getting a, getting above themselves or, or or doing something sort of morally dodgy, um, but rather I think that you know, Martel the steward knew full well. Um, how paradoxical his position was, um, and that there's a kind of self-consciousness in the irony um, of, you know, the line of ruling stewards. Um, Rachel says, Sam could kind of be called the steward of the Shire. Absolutely, I think that Sam could be called the steward of the Shire. I think that the role that Sam plays in the Shire at the end is a very stewardly role, that um, how Sam acts towards the Shire is very much parallel to the role that Gandalf is ascribing to himself in that speech, um, so uh, Rachel, I think that's a that's a brilliant way uh, to think about it, um, and to understand what Gandalf means when he calls himself a steward. Um, he is a servant, a caretaker, the one who is. Um, of course, the steward was in a position of of was ha- put in a position of authority in a sense, um, but only because a great many things are placed in his care. Your steward is like the guy who keeps your accounts, not just your bookkeeper, but, um, you know, is the guy that you trust to run your farm for you. You know, the the, the guy who, 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 who takes care of, you know, administrative, uh, all the administrative details. Um, that's that's again sort of traditionally what the the job of steward was um you know if you have numerous estates and you know your estates consist of farms with tenants in various places um you don't you can't oversee them all personally so you appoint a steward to oversee each one of them so that steward is on the one hand in a position of dele- delegated authority but his position is not primarily marked as one who rules it's one who serves and who who oversees who who takes care of that farm that estate for the ab- in the place of the absent master even in the in the uh, uh even in the place of a present master um yeah. So, um, uh, so that's how. That's sort of the concept. That's sort of the concept of steward again. In this sense, the Gondorian stewardship is weird. Is devious. It's, it's it's unnatural. Um, and of course, it's unnatural because it's supposed to be a kingship, right? And so the the ruling stewards are a paradox. I mean, if that so- if ruling steward sounds like a fish out of water, it's supposed to, right? Because that's not that's not how things were supposed to be. It is a violation uh, of the natural order. Um, uh, anyway, so that's that, that. Those those are that's in general how I understand Gandalf's reference to stewardship. A short question with a short, simple answer. K. Uh, ben Abraham asks: Does Frodo give in and fail at the end? Yes. Okay. Next. Okay, I'm just kidding. I'll say a little bit more about that. Um, but yes, he does. Um, I, I actually, and I, I forget, if anybody can remember uh, and remind me, that would be helpful. Uh, Tolkien talks about this very explicitly uh, in at least one of the published letters. Um, if anybody has that volume at hand and can easily look it up while I'm talking and uh, help me refer people to the um, uh, to the cur- you know to the to the to the letter in question, um, uh, I would be grateful. But anyway, um, 
talking talking fails uh, or talking fails frodo fails uh talking says that frodo fails ah uh, it's getting late and my tongue is getting twisted um uh at the end, meaning, I assume, Kay is referring to at the crack of doom uh, when Frodo claims the ring for himself. Um, and that is a failure. My understanding of the failure there, um, Frodo needs help. Frodo does not have the strength to do it. Frodo has... Frodo fails, but he's not a failure. He has done everything, everything and more than everything that could possibly have been asked of him. He has um, borne the ring and forborne the ring until the very, very end, but he he does not have the strength to throw the ring into the fire. He didn't have the strength to throw the ring into his his, his cooking fire, back you know, into his fireplace, back in Bag End. Um, way back before all of this stuff happens. Um, you know, and that's that's a pretty clear foreshadowing of his failure to cast the ring into the cracks of doom at the end. Um I um you know, it's uh, it's you know. Arthur points out you know, his original task was to bring the ring to the cracks of doom. Um, he accomplished that. Yes, yeah, true. I mean, clearly, you know, the goal was to was to get rid of the ring once he got there. Uh, that was clearly his task. Good. Alyssa and Tom in the same moment found it. Letter two forty six. Thank you. So I, I I commend to you letter two forty six. Tolkien's discussion uh, of uh, of the uh, of 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 Frodo's failure here, um, <clears throat> but again, the, the 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 thing is, I think, um, you know, it's fascinating because Tolkien is credited rightly with writing a book about heroes. You know, a book that is full of really powerful archetypes. You know, that we get, and it's one of my complaints about the Lord of the Rings films that those heroes are 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 dragged down. To a you know to a to a merely mortal level you know and we get the the Aragorn f- you know fraught with self doubt and uh, Gandalf who has his staff utterly inexplicably smashed by the Witch King, um, uh, which I still find to be the most inexplic- inexplicable and bizarre moment in any Peter Jackson film. However, um, great heroes right in Tolkien's book we get all these figures which are absolutely way larger than life. And yet, at the core, you know, the very heart, the most triumphant moment in the story can't be done by a hero. Frodo doesn't simply become larger than life. In the end, he only succeeds by grace. Um, He needs help. He needs a eucatastrophe before he can actually succeed. Um, Yeah. Um, Steve asks the excellent follow-up question, Gandalf having seen Frodo's reluctance even to put the ring into the fireplace, how could he have trusted him to throw the ring into the fire at the council that settled on the planned course of action? Seems pretty dumb, doesn't it? I mean, come on, Gandalf. Obviously, you could have seen that coming, right? Um, It's not going to be any easier to throw it into the cracks of doom than it was to throw it into the fireplace, and he already failed at that, so how on earth could you expect him to do that? I don't think he could. Um, Remember Gandalf's own argument? Um, on a on a different subject, right? Why, according to Gandalf, should they take Merry and Pippin along? Because it's the foolish thing to do, right? We should choose. We should, uh, 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 you know, we should choose rather their friendship um, than any great wisdom, right? Um, 
We've got wisdom on the one hand and, and, and foolishness on the other hand. Let's go with foolishness every time. And in the course of the Two Towers class, we talked uh, a lot about this. Um, you know, this whole decision-making process thing. Um, choosing the foolish, the outwardly foolish path is often the way to go. Um, it's pretty clear that neither An- neither Elrond nor Gandalf is looking at Frodo and thinking, this guy's got the tools, right? This guy's got what it takes. If anybody can throw it into the cracks of doom, he can. Elrond says, "If uh, you know, you will succeed in this quest. If anybody does, that doesn't mean because you're awesome, right? Because you have, uh, you know, the internal fortitude to 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 get this done. You are uniquely qualified to succeed at this. Qu- no, no. Um, but he's the one who is has been chosen uh, for this." And therefore, he's the one that should do it. Um, and th- there is an element, I think, uh, a strong element in both Gandalf's statements and Elrond's statements, a strong element of faith. Um, th- uh, I, I think, you know, and again, in, in, in we, we, I talked about, you know, I'm, I'm appealing back to my terms that I was using in the Two Towers class, especially. Um, good. Richard uh, Cobb was just pointing out, perhaps Gandalf explained that in speaking of Frodo being meant to possess it. Yes, exactly, Richard. That's that's exactly what I'm thinking there. Um, and remember, Gandalf says at the time, and that may be a com- you know, that you also were meant to have it, and that may be a comforting thought. And Frodo says, it is not a comforting thought. Well, it seems to be for Gandalf, and probably for Elrond also. Um, but again, that's... Um, Frodo is the instrument who is who is you know, who is used through his choices? He's the one who brings the ring there. He is the one, indeed, who is, uh, you know, it was his doom as Frodo himself comes to accept in the Return of the King. It was his doom uh, to go to that mountain yonder, and he does go to that mountain yonder. But in the end, he fails. He doesn't have the strength to do it himself. He needs a catastrophe. He needs grace. Um, okay. Why does Gandalf claim that the whole point of the story was to equip the hobbits to clear up the problems in the Shire? Uh, Kay pointing to Gandalf's rather sweeping statement um, that uh, this is what they've been trained for, that this is sort of, this is, this is the whole point of the thing. Um, in, I, I, of course, I, I, I don't think um, that we need take Gandalf's comments perfectly literally, you know, that is to say the whole quest of the ring and war of the ring and everything was just a means to an end, right? And that end was equipping Mary Pippin and Sam especially to be able to go back and kick Bill Fernie and Saruman out of the Shire. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I think clearly that's not what Gandalf is suggesting here. However, um, I do think what Gandalf... Anyway, I, I do think how we're to understand Gandalf's comment there is that he's commenting on applicability, right? That um, uh, the story that you have just been experiencing, Mary Pippin and Sam, um, has applicability, right? And it's up to you to find it and apply it. Again, it makes me think of the there and back again structure of the Hobbit's journey... Uh, with an S apostrophe there, um, the there and back again structure as a parallel to our own experience, right? Um, 
they have been through this whole experience. They have been changed by their time out in the big world as they're now returning to their small world. Um, it's not, in one sense, not quite as dramatic a shift as with Bilbo from the mundane, pretty much non-magical, non-interesting world uh, of his uh, life at the beginning to the world of adventure that he goes off into and then comes back to the mundane world, bringing some of the adventure with him uh, and some of the wonders. Um, but in the in the Lord of the Rings, uh, the issue is more the big and the small, right? The, it's not like you're leaving the mundane world and entering the world of magic, necessarily. Um, the whole Hobbit world is tinged with magic. Certainly the world of Bag End is tinged with magic from the beginning of the Lord of the Rings in ways like it wasn't in the Hobbit with the presence of the ring um, and the and the sort of the, even just the entire legacy of Bilbo's earlier previous experience which has clearly changed not only Frodo but the other Hobbits as well. However, um, it, it's that, uh, you know, the conversation between Merry and Pippin in the Houses of the Hewings, you know, we took some brandy bucks, we can't live long on the heights, right? Uh, no, says Merry, but it's good for us to know about them, right? Um, we can still be changed by them. Whether you are changed literally, as Merry and Pippin are made larger and taller by their adventures, um, whether you're physically made bigger or not, uh, you will be enlarged uh, by these experiences and that enlargement will equip you to then handle, uh, you know, that, that it is to be applied to real-world problems. And here I come back to the points I was making about applicability in the Scouring of the Shire. It is interesting, in that context, that this passage, the Scouring of the Shire, in which we get, I think, more overt applicability to the modern primary world, um, that is the way that English political issues and, you know, forebodings which have very practical and very obvious applicability uh, to the English political situation of the 20th century in the Scouring of the Shire. Um, I think that that, uh, it's interesting that we find when they return, um, you know, and it's, uh, it's applicability time, that applicability is something that I think that we are invited to sort of share in ourselves. Um, uh, anyway, um, I'm uh, moving on with increased efficiency here. Uh, one small, uh, but uh, prepare to have your mind blown. Mind blown again by Ed Powell. How many people really understand that we have all been pronouncing Gandalf wrong all these years? From Appendix E, F represents F, except at the end of words, where it is used to represent the sound of V, as in English of, Nindalv, Fladriv. There it is. Uh, v has the sound of English V, but it is not used finally. CF, that is the letter V, isn't used finally, even though the sound V might be used finally. So, Ed concludes, it's Gandalf, not Gandalf. You learn something new every day. Not that I'm going to change, by the way. Uh, me neither, Ed. Um, and I think in existing recordings, it doesn't sound like Ga like Tolkien himself was saying Gandalf uh, all that clearly. Um, first of all, I would say that I think even to be consistent uh, uh, with this, um, we... Uh, even to be consistent with this, we don't have to make it really 
pronounced. It doesn't have to be Gandalf. You know, you don't have to sit on it that long. In fact, if you say it quickly, Gandalf doesn't sound that much different from Gandalf. Um, when I just said it in two different ways in that one sentence. Um, uh, but actually, and this is another thing I want to address, Robert is asking, but, you know, Gandalf, the word Gandalf isn't Elvish. No, but none of it, no, remember, he says this in Appendix E when he's explaining the pronunciation. Um, all of the names as they are represented with English letters, um, remember the whole thing is a translation, right? And he says that I'm trying to be consistent in all of it so that the pronunciation rules apply to everything. Um, it's not, when you're, when, you know, when, when we're reading... Um, all of this stuff is not only translated, but also transliterated. So when he is transliterating, he is trying to transliterate, he says, the sounds consistently, so that when he chooses how to spell these names in English, in the book, um, he is choosing spellings of them um, that will represent the same phonemes with the same sound combinations, so that uh, the pronunciation guide therefore applies to all words, um, because he will, um, because he's just trying to, the phonemes may be put together differently in different languages, and we can notice those patterns, but all of the phonemes are being attached to particular sounds, and, and, and he's trying to be consistent so that we can learn how to pronounce them all properly. That's what he says in Appendix E. Um, so my understanding is that his pronunciation rules apply to all names, uh, as, especially all names as they are, you know, to all names as they are represented uh, in English characters. Um, what's the actual Westron for Gandalf? I don't know. No idea. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, uh, that is uh, indeed, there's your mind-blowing fact for the day, that Gandalf is not actually Gandalf, but Gandalf. Um, I don't think I'm going to change either, Ed, but there it is. Fascinating, huh? Okay. Uh, Michael Lucero had a, a Gimli question. I would like to know why you think the Valar might have let Gimli sail to Amman. I understand why the hobbits were allowed there, because they'd served the world by bearing a burden, the wounds of which couldn't be healed anywhere else. But this doesn't seem to apply to Gimli at all. It is, just beca is it just because he was a member of the Fellowship? If so, should we think that if Boromir had survived the War of the Ring, he'd be allowed there too? One wouldn't think so, considering what happened the last time men set foot on Amon. If not, uh, but if not, the, right, whole Numenorean thing still kind of festering. But if not, then what makes that any different from Gimli? Um, <clears throat> an excellent question. Of course, we don't know. Uh, you know. It's one of those questions that, you know, there's no answer to this. Is only that one brief reference of him sailing into the west, uh, and explaining that Goadriel put in a good word for him. Um, <laughs> Sarah King's answer is my favorite. I'm going to stand by that. Sarah says because the Valar just wanted to irritate Feanor. Um, that's a lovely answer uh, because uh, uh, Feanor, we're told, uh, loved Goadriel's hair. Um, and uh, and and Tolkien even says at one point that the 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 gold the the, the mixed gold and silver of Galadriel's hair uh, uh, and sort of the, you know the sheen of it was what one of the things that inspired Feanor to make the Silmarils in the first place. Um, so and he asked Galadriel for a strand of her hair, 
Uh, and she said no. She turned uh, Feanor down. This is one reason why when Gimli asks, or doesn't ask for, but names uh, a single strand of her hair, the other elves all gasp. Um, that's a really cheeky thing to ask of Galadriel, especially under the under the circumstances uh, when she denied Feanor himself the same request, but she gives it to Gimli. Uh, so, uh, Sarah, I absolutely love your answer. Um, it's just to cheese off Feanor that they let Gimli in so that he could be continually confronted by the dwarf that Goadriel you know, and, then, and, and to allow Goadriel to kind of rub it in. Hey, Gimli, did you bring your, uh, your crystal in which you're going to contain the three strands of my hair? Your little dwarven Silmarils there? Uh, Silmaril there, you know, with the three things. So, yeah, uh, you, can, you can show that to Feanor. He always wanted one of those, but he can't have one. Um, that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, Robert asks, was the Feanor episode composed before or after? Um, I think yeah, the dating of those is confused. I think it's after. Um, uh, so that sort of added significance is kind of granted uh, to the surprise of the moment uh, after the fact. I believe. I'd have to double check that. Um, but uh, I think so. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Alyssa and Scott were both... Uh, Scott says, uh, not that Feanor is ever going to be let out of Mandos anytime soon. Um, yeah, well, that doesn't mean they can't, they can't go, uh, go and, uh, uh, and, and <clears throat> rub it in. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's certainly true. But it's still an awesome answer. Um, the only other answer I have, which is radically inferior to that one... Um, is simply remember he's in a he's in a, a sort of a different category. There's been no dwarf. There's no record that any dwarf ever wanted to go to the west. Um, I mean, he's like a precedent establishing case, so far as I know. Um, you know, there was that issue, of course, with humans, and humans were, uh, after due consideration, banned. Uh, from going there, um, dwarves, you know, kind of never come up before. Um, you know, why should he be denied? Why can't he go and hang out with Aule after all? Um, but, um, but anyway, uh, it, it, so I don't know. I mean, it's the, the whole. This, the answer to this question must be widely speculative, which is why I think I like the funny answer. Um, but uh, um, but even the... There's a sense in which, especially in Valinor as it is now, that is, after the uh, downfall of Numenor uh, and the removal of Valinor from the normal world, uh, you know, from the curved earth, um, how Valinor has become fairy, has become a kind of other world, um, that the elves can go to, have become a kind of other world, it has become another world, it's not in our world anymore, and exactly, though a straight path still remains, it is not in our world anymore. Um, I think, um, 
you know, Michael, I would actually quibble with uh, your description of why the ring bearers are taken there. I don't think they're brought there as a reward for their meritorious service. Their service was doubtless meritorious, uh, and uh, their self-sacrifice would doubtless be honored. But I'm not sure that that's the primary reason why. One thing that has always kind of made sense to me about their about the ring bearers being taken over because that's explicit not about the fellowship. It's about the ring bearers, right? Um, and uh, why the ring bearers would why it would be appropriate for them to go is they as Frodo himself feels in the in Michael's question we were addressing earlier on he no longer fully belongs here anymore right um he like Glorfindel lives partly in this world and partly in the other world um and so he is finally brought to that other world um because he's living <clears throat> This existence, Glorfindel is living presumably uh, an integrated and healthy double existence in both worlds. Frodo's not. Frodo has been um, damaged. You know, he's been forcibly dragged halfway into that other world, more than halfway into that other world. Um, and he cannot be healed. He cannot be one and whole. Um, he needs to be um, sort of reunited in that way. So he is since his physical body can't be healed, he's basically taken out and made whole in the other place. Um, Scott asks, are, do we believe that, are we to believe then that Bilbo was so damaged? Yes, yes, I do think. Um, he's like butter stretched over too much bread. Um, that's a <clears throat> not exactly a reversible condition. I mean, he starts to age uh, when he gives up the ring, um, but he's still clearly affected by it. Um, he still has been uh, he still has been changed. Um, so anyway, thus the situation with the ring bearers in what is I think at least one way of looking at it. Um, dwarves, who knows with the dwarves? Right again, you think about it. You think in the same terms. Elves belong there in Elvenholm. That 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 place is their place as well. Humans, it's not just that they can't handle it, though they can't, it seems. And it's not just that you know the Numenor thing is still a sensitive uh, topic, but rather they can't go because it's not their place, right? It's called Elven Home for a reason. It's not their place. Their place is elsewhere, right? Their place is beyond the circles of the world. Um, for them to go there is wrong, is inappropriate. They cannot find their harbor there. The dwarves? Who knows about the dwarves or where their harbor is? Um, so perhaps it is less a violation of things uh, for the dwarves to go there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe, you know, the halls of their fathers is, uh, you know, yeah, Scott says Aule has a special wing. Who knows? Maybe so. Don't know. Um, but uh, we just don't know all that much about the dwarves. Um, so we don't even know how much of an exception it was necessarily, but I certainly don't think membership in the fellowship as a whole uh, qualifies you in any sort of for any particular reason. Um, Mary and Pippin, for that matter, aren't going to go to Valinor either. Um, yeah, good. Um, 
Jana, what a wonderful way to think about what happened about the long-term effects for Bilbo. That's a perfect metaphor. Um, uh, Jana says, after after losing the ring, the beer doesn't get less watered down, it just gets less. Uh, exactly. Um, Bilbo, uh, uh, Bilbo's life was like a watered-down beer barrel, right? Um, normally, you have only so much beer, and you ta- and you tap the keg at birth, and then the beer is pouring out over the course of your life, and then sooner or later the ton is empty, and uh, and you die. That's how life works. Um, when you have a ring of power, you continue going on. Liquid will keep pouring indefinitely out of the tap. Um, but what's getting poured into the ta- into the into the tun into the into the beer barrel is not more beer; it's water, right? So your beer is getting watered. It's your 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 tun is still full, but it's uh, f- full of increasingly watered down stuff. Um, by the way, if you're wondering what the authority for this beer barrel uh, uh, metaphor of life is, uh, m- my authority is Chaucer. Um, uh, th- this is the this is the the metaphor that uh uh this is the metaphor that uh, which one was it the reeve the reeve is the one who uses the beer barrel metaphor um for uh, uh for life anyway <laughs> robert says i guess bilbo doesn't believe in homeopathy no no robert he really doesn't seem to uh yeah uh, Gollum had perhaps achieved uh homeopathic levels of humanity uh by the time he got to where he was um yeah yeah exactly um <laughs> it did not grow stronger as it was watered down in fact robert shockingly that didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, so, so Yana's exactly right. Um, when Bilbo loses the ring, the beer barrel stops getting watered down um, and carries on flowing out, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that's, that, is, that, is, that is excellent. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that, uh, love that, uh, that, that version of that metaphor. Um, Okay, um, hey, that was my last one. I finished. Woohoo! Um, so I'm sure nobody else has any other questions, so we will end with the beer barrel of life. Now, the, uh, the, uh, the, the beer barrel of the Return of the Ring course, uh, has, uh, has come to an end here, uh, and, uh, we are, we have now, we have now filled our last pint, um, at the uh, at the ton of this class, um, so however, I would like to officially announce many of you have uh, received that is those of you who are voters in the Mythgard Academy process have already received notification for those of you who are not, uh, I will let you know that the official next class is. The unfinished tales uh, class. That is, that is, it has officially been decided in a very close vote. As I told you last time, it was tied. The tiebreaker vote came in. It was very dramatic. <clears throat> Again, a vote for Ender's Game came in, and then a larger vote. Uh, then a few more votes for the, for unfinished tales came in uh, after that. So, 
Unfinished Tales is going to be next. Uh, uh, we're going to be reading Unfinished Tales all the way through. Some people wanted to read only the Third Age stuff. I say, that's for weenies. We're going to read it all. Uh, so uh, we're going to start at the beginning and go all the way to the end. Um, I plan to start the first class looking at a, a sort of an Unfinished Tales timeline, and then we're going we're gonna to jump right into Tour uh, uh, and is coming to Gondolin in the first class. I will be publishing... We're planning to start class the first week of January, um, by which I mean January Thursday, January 2nd. I'm going to stick with Thursdays, I think, because uh, Thursdays work well for me. Um, I will uh, have the full schedule uh, and all of the links and stuff published um, uh, as soon as I can get to that here uh, in the next week or two. Um, but we're definitely going to plan to start on Thursday the 2nd. Um, so we'll st- uh, it's going to be a 10-session class. It's going to be a longer class because uh, the Unfinished is a lot in the Unfinished Tales. Um, and um, I've tried to be sort of uh, sensible uh, for um, uh, in how I'm breaking classes up and how much uh, time we spend on each uh, section and uh, uh, chapter, not exactly chapters, but each little portion um, of uh, of that book. So um, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go through it. We're going to go through it cover to cover. So we will start that in the beginning of January, and that will take us through sometime in March. So uh, thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. We've got a couple weeks off, and then we'll come back for Unfinished Tales in two weeks. So thanks very much, everybody. Good night.